Welcome to the Radical Truth Podcast. I am your host, Glenn Meldrum, and this podcast is brought to you by In His Presence Ministries. Visit us on the web at www.ihpministry.com. This is a day to celebrate. This is my 520th podcast, making it 10 full years that I have done this. Okay, enough of the celebrating. Now let's get into our study. The end of the sermon Peter delivered on the day of Pentecost is summarized in Acts chapter 2, verse 40. With many other words, he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. What an awesome way to end a fiery sermon, and the results, as we will soon see, proves that it was divinely anointed. How we need anointed sermons like Peter preached in the church today throughout our country and the world. The wickedness that abounds in our nation is directly the result of the church's failure to be light in this dark world. We haven't proven to the world through the Pentecostal power of the Spirit that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. So the mass of people are going to all the wrong places seeking to somehow satisfy the emptiness that consumes them. Because the professing church hasn't saved herself from this corrupt generation, she has been corrupted by the spirit of the world that's from hell. We need a New Testament church like we see in Acts chapter 2 and throughout the book of Acts, a church that's operating in the same Pentecostal power the 120 disciples experienced on the day of Pentecost. What we will see in this lesson is the fruit that came out of Peter's Holy Spirit-filled sermon and the life of the early church that operated in the power of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. The wonderful results of Peter's Pentecostal sermon is seen in Acts chapter 2 verse 41. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the results of real revival and true church growth the way that the Lord designed it, which is explosive. This is what the Lord wants to do in our time if some saints will live the lives that the Lord anoints and believe the truths that make the way for such a blessing. This is not only the model of preaching that should define preachers all across the country, but pastors and church leaders should be seeking to have a Holy Spirit outpouring that can produce similar results. Do our hearts break over the lack of spiritual power that's in the pulpits today? We desperately need Pentecostal power if we want to see the Lord rend the heavens in our time. Are we disturbed that we aren't seeing large crowds coming to Christ? A vast number of churches rarely see anyone saved today, yet the people don't see this as a major veering away from the New Testament example that should define the true church of all eras and nationalities. We should be crying out for God to awaken the church that's fallen asleep in the light, that's so consumed with a comfortable life and religion that we no longer weep over multitudes that are rushing to hell. Now the point that these converts were added to the church means that they gave verifiable evidence that their salvation was real, and they proved this through a transformed life. It used to be that the church wouldn't count a person as a genuine convert to Christ until they were added into the local church membership or roster. Their reason for doing this was good. It kept the superficial and worldly out of the church. They counted only those who were truly born again and gave evidence of it. The idea of raising your hand to accept Christ was unheard of at that time. This weak idea of salvation was ushered in through the easy believism of the 1800s that eventually became known in our day as a seeker-sensitive movement. We don't need the American kind of hand-raising Christianity where people aren't revolutionized by the gospel because they haven't been genuinely born again. 
The church shouldn't be counting how many people have raised their hands and wanting to have a faith that costs them nothing. We should only be looking for biblical salvations that are always radical. This is where lives are so transformed by the grace of God that their salvation is obvious because they are bearing the fruit of the Spirit rather than the fruit of the flesh. Emperor Constantine legalized the church in 313 AD, and the church then ceased to be persecuted by the Roman Empire. Though this sounds good, it actually had some very negative effects upon the life of the church. Once the negative stigma was lifted from being Christian, people began flocking into the church, and as they did, the moral and spiritual standard of the church plummeted as they brought with them their pagan beliefs. At the same time, there was a move to mingle secular government with the church, and this is called Constantinianism. This was an absolute failure and always will be until Jesus reigns in this world. Whenever the church gains control over civil power, she must pick up the sword to rule, which totally changes the God-given purpose of the church. Where power corrupts, absolute power corrupts absolutely. And when the church gets control of secular government, it always corrupts the church. Constantinianism is different from Christians being actively involved in secular politics to help influence the development of godly laws. This isn't striving to make a Christian government that always gets corrupted by that power, but to be a conscience within secular government so that it doesn't become tyrannical. During this time is also when the Catholic Church began to form, and after it got a stranglehold upon secular government, it took over a thousand years for the true church to get deliverance from this corrupt civil and religious system. My point in saying all this is to press home the thought that we need to return to the New Testament model of the church that's spirit-defined, not purpose or power-driven like the world. The life of the early church is more clearly outlined in verse 42 and what follows. In verse 42 we read, They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. First off, we need to learn what it means to be devoted. The King James translated the words as continued steadfastly, which presents two ideas. The first is that their faith and service to Christ wasn't up and down, but was consistent and stable. The second idea is that their faith and relationship with Christ was firm in purpose. They knew what they were called to do and were unwavering in their adherence to Christ and His church. Devotion refers to profound dedication or consecration that comes through a strong attachment to Jesus. This produces a strong adherence to those religious exercises that develop a greater love for Christ. Whether we use the word devote or to continue steadfastly, the idea is the same. This is a wholehearted, passionate pursuit of God. To be devoted to Christ, a disciple must leave all to follow Him, totally abandoning himself to the Savior and His teaching, kingdom, and mission. It means for a disciple to give himself away to Jesus, to be consecrated to Him, to be set apart for His purpose, to have a loyal commitment to Him above all other commitments, and to pledge yourself to Him out of love. Jesus demands that we grant Him absolute authority over our life and to love Him supremely, which is to love Him above every other love in our life. Paul made a powerful point about this devotion in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 24. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Devotion to God is only devotion to God and acceptable to Him when it's done out of love for Him. Sundar Thapa had planted over 100 churches in the Buddhist nation of Nepal. He asked every new convert eight questions before he would baptize them, 
And I ask you to meditate upon each of these as we go over them and honestly evaluate where your faith and loyalty stands. The first thing Sundar asked them is, are you willing to be forced to leave your home and parents? Would you follow Jesus if you were rejected by family and friends? Number two, are you willing to lose the inheritance of your father? If you become a follower of Jesus, your father may disinherit you. Are you willing to give up your inheritance? Three, are you willing to lose your job? If your boss learns that you have become a Christian and threatens to fire you, what will you do? If you have a wife and children and lose your income, will you be faithful to Jesus or claim a little compromise is acceptable to feed the family? Then Sundar asks, are you willing to go to jail? If it's illegal to follow Jesus, will you deny him or be faithful to him, even if it means spending years in prison for the crime of loving Jesus? Fifth, are you willing to be beaten and tortured by the police? When the true faith becomes illegal, the government and police will be corrupted as well, and this could open the door for physical and mental abuse by them. Will you be faithful to Jesus? The next one is, are you willing to die for Christ's sake if necessary? It's easy to say that we will die for Jesus when there's no threat to our life. But are you devoted to Christ to the point that you will die for him if it comes to that? Notice that as Sundar moves along with his questions, they grow more costly. Then we come to number seven. Are you willing to tell others about Jesus? If we won't tell others about Jesus because we are afraid of persecution, then we certainly aren't ready to die for Jesus or to do the other points in this list. The last question Sundar asks is very interesting. Are you willing to bring all the tithe into the house of the Lord? Why would he ask this question at the end of his list instead of at the beginning? Like with question number seven, if we aren't willing to witness for Jesus or to freely give our tithes to him, then we will not pay the price that's mentioned in the other questions. What's Sundar striving to communicate to those who wanted to get baptized? that following Jesus is costly, and this is what devotion to Jesus looks like. It's all-consuming. Why were those early believers devoted to Jesus? First, they knew who Jesus was and the events that proved it. Those early disciples began following him at different points during his ministry. The apostles were with him from the beginning of his ministry, so they virtually saw everything. Yet all those who followed him while he walked this earth saw his miracles, heard his teaching, studied his life, and came to believe that he was the promised Messiah. Many of these disciples could give first-hand testimonies of the miracles Jesus performed. Either they themselves were healed by Jesus, or they saw with their own eyes some of his miracles. A few disciples saw Jesus crucified, and those that didn't knew the events were a fact. There was no doubt in their minds that Jesus died on a Roman cross. Many of his followers saw the resurrected Christ, so they knew he had risen from the dead. Those who didn't see Jesus after his resurrection knew enough eyewitnesses to destroy any doubt. Over 500 people saw Jesus ascend into heaven, and the evidence here is tremendous. It's overwhelming. Those who came to salvation after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension had a great cloud of witnesses that were eyewitnesses of the life, teaching, and miracles of Jesus. They had first-hand accounts of his death, resurrection, and ascension. With all this testimony, how could any of them not be fully devoted to Jesus? 
Just imagine the testimonies they had about Jesus and flesh and blood and the stories they could tell about him. No one in all of human history was like Jesus, and they knew this to be a fact. It was during this season of the early church where there needed to be a superabundance of evidence from first-hand accounts so that the infant church could grow and expand throughout the known world. We know Jesus was sinless because he was God incarnate, but the disciples didn't understand this until after his resurrection and ascension. Yet they knew he wasn't like any man they had ever met before. His perfect character must have been disturbing, even convicting. He never did anything wrong, was never impatient or unloving, even though he did deal very strongly with the religious Jews. I would also say that those early saints were fully devoted to Jesus because they loved him more than life. There was no one more loving than Jesus, yet his love brought trauma to people because it exposed in them the corruption of their life and character. With these few points that I brought out, we can see why those disciples were totally devoted to Jesus, and there's many others besides. Actually, it's harder to understand why more people weren't devoted to Jesus with this overwhelming evidence. Now that we've established what it means to be devoted to Jesus, we need to look at the four things that the early church was devoted to that came out of their devotion to Christ. We are told that the disciples were devoted to the apostles' teaching. What was the apostles' teaching? The Gospels, especially what's written in red, which are the words of Jesus, that is, if you have a red-letter edition of the Bible. The apostles and early disciples would have been teaching what Jesus taught and sharing the miracles he performed with those who would listen to them. Yes, they would have used the Old Testament to teach on the prophecies about Christ's first coming, but they considered what Jesus taught to be of the utmost importance. The disciples were devoted to him because they believed Jesus' teaching down to the core of their being and followed his example no matter the cost. If a man can perform miracles like Jesus did, teach and preach under the anointing like he did, love people in the phenomenal way that he did, and rise from the dead after being crucified, I think it's wise to listen to his teaching. <laughs> and this is exactly what the disciples did, and because they obeyed Christ's teaching, his promises towards them were fulfilled. There is a historical path that all four Gospels take, though they begin at different points. Luke begins with the birth of John the Baptist, while John begins with John the Baptist's ministry and the commencement of our Lord's ministry. Yet all the Gospels end with Christ's death and resurrection, which is the ultimate reason why he came into the world to be our atoning sacrifice, to conquer sin, death, and hell for us. Though the early church preached Christ crucified, they strongly focused upon his resurrection because that proved his divinity and that he was the promised Messiah. They were totally devoted to this message, and the church of today must be devoted to it as well if we want to be faithful to Jesus and win the loss to him. Everything Jesus did was moving him towards the cross, and this principle should define the church as well, where everything we do is to lead people to the foot of the cross, where they can know Christ and his salvation. Only then can they know the power of Christ's resurrection that can cause them to live victorious over sin in the world. If we fail at this point concerning the word of truth, then there's no way that we will live out the three remaining aspects of the Christian life according to verse 42. The King James Version translated the idea that the disciples continued in the apostles' doctrine, while modern translations most often say teaching. Both translations are correct. 
The Greek word Dr. Luke used is didache, which means instruction, teaching, or doctrine. We mustn't inject into the definition of doctrine here the modern idea where each denomination has distinct doctrines. The word doctrine in this case is just the plain teaching from the Gospels, and this is what defined the early church and should define us as well. One evidence that salvation has come to people is when they want to be taught the Word of God and how to live it out on a daily basis. Those who claim to be Christian but have no love for the Word are either not generally saved or have some flaw in their faith that could prove to them to be spiritually fatal. When an infant doesn't have a hunger for food and won't eat, then that child has something terribly wrong with her, and if the problem isn't solved, she will die. People can't remain in the faith for long without a hunger for God and His Word. The Word of God is spiritual food that we must eat or die of spiritual starvation. The tragedy of this is that there is a table spread with the finest, freshest food that could ever be eaten, yet people die within reach of it because they refuse to eat from the Lord's table. This is a combination of deliberate rebellion and a lack of spiritual appetite. In other words, they aren't devoted to the Word of God, which means that they aren't devoted to the God of the Word. The next thing that verse 42 tells us is that those early disciples were devoted to the fellowship. This fellowship wasn't believers getting together just to enjoy each other's company, but it was a necessary part of their spiritual survival and development. Here we have another issue about spiritual hunger. And just as an infant that won't eat will die, so too will an infant die that rejects her mother. Of course, with modern medicine, a baby can live without the mother, but that wasn't the case in days gone by. Those who aren't hungry for the Word aren't going to be hungry for true fellowship either, for it takes a lover of God's Word to do both. I think at this point we need to have a working definition of the word fellowship. The Greek word is koinonia and is used 20 times in Scripture. Koinonia refers to a partnership, communion, or a participation in the lives of others who are of like precious faith. This is where people are partaking of life together, where they are involved in each other's lives, but in a spiritual way. People of like attitudes can hang together, but that doesn't mean koinonia is taking place. Bars are counterfeit churches and are the creation of hell that ruin people's soul and keep them from Christ. Koinonia is spiritual and can only be done by true believers who are being spiritually minded with each other. Because Christians get together to talk about sports or shop doesn't mean that any koinonia has taken place, since this is done constantly in the world. For there to be authentic koinonia, Jesus must be central to the conversation and interaction of life. If Jesus is left out of the relationship, then koinonia hasn't taken place. GodQuestions.com gave an interesting take on the meaning of koinonia, writing, a powerful example of what koinonia should look like can be found in a study of the phrase one another in the Bible. Scripture commands us to be devoted to one another, honor one another, live in harmony with one another, accept one another, serve one another in love, be kind and compassionate to one another, admonish one another, encourage one another, spur one another on to love and good works, offer hospitality and love one another, that is what true biblical koinonia should look like. Now, that's a good overview of koinonia, and this is what the primitive church was devoted to. It wasn't just that those saints found such fellowship sweet and fulfilling, but it was necessary for their spiritual survival. 
Many people, when they became followers of Jesus, were persecuted, some being rejected by their parents and family and kicked out of the family business. Many believers were left destitute. The church became their family when their natural family rejected them. In the face of persecution, they needed each other to stand against the assaults from hell that were designed to separate them from Christ. For Christians to alienate themselves from each other will eventually cause them to be alienated from Christ. We can't faithfully walk out this life of faith all alone. And that's why Paul told us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 25, Let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Separate yourselves from on-fire believers and your fire will go out. If you stop going to church because you were hurt, then you have let the devil win a decisive victory over you and have played right into his hands. Divide and conquer is one of hell's strategies to bring down Christians so that they forsake Christ. And I'm sad to say it works. When people do life together, they are bound to hurt each other. And this is why forgiving one another is vitally important. The crazy thing about bitterness is that those who are bitter at people who have hurt them have forgotten that they have hurt others themselves. This is a form of hypocrisy that's similar to the father who disciplines his son for smoking while he is smoking a cigarette himself or beats his son because he got in a fight at school. Here we are in 21st century American culture that isn't facing outright persecution yet but we live in a sensual culture that has done more damage to the church than persecution can. I'm not diminishing the horrors of persecution, just stating that prosperity and sensuality has some serious devils advancing this devilish cause because they are extremely effective in ruining people's lives. In this sensual culture, we need the fellowship of the saints to help us stand in this evil day. At the end of Peter's sermon that we just finished studying, he warned the crowd to Save yourself from this corrupt generation. The generation of our day is far more evil than it was back then. If we want to make heaven our eternal home, then we must come to grips that we are in great need of genuine koinonia and we shouldn't settle for anything less. Not just that. It's God's will for us to live in koinonia. Another point about true koinonia is that it crosses all ethnic and cultural barriers. There's no place in Christ's kingdom for hatred, bigotry, or prejudice, nor is it acceptable to be a respecter of persons due to wealth, caste, family, lineage, social status, or the like. True koinonia breaks down all these barriers, but doesn't compromise the faith to uphold the politically correct view where we must accept what God calls evil and immoral. Only true followers of Jesus can do koinonia, and those outside the faith have no part of this sacred life and family. They are, however, invited to enter into this fellowship through repentance and turning away from evil. The third thing that verse 42 teaches us about is that those early disciples were devoted to the breaking of bread. This is a little more challenging to understand, and it has been given some diverse definitions often to support a pet doctrine of a particular denomination or religion. First off, I don't believe the primary purpose of this has to do with communion or the Lord's Supper, though it may include it. I also don't think that this is a reference to what was called the love feasts that were abandoned because of abuse. Love feasts were the gathering of the saints for a meal where each family brought their own food. The problem arose when the wealthy brought their luscious food while the poor went hungry or had very little. 
This didn't create koinonia, but it broke it down by making classes within the church, and this has happened in many ways throughout the history of the church. An example of this is the old practice of pew rental, where the wealthy rented their pews and the poor either had to sit on the floor or in sections designated to them. Rather than making the breaking of bread a reference to communion or common meals, I think the important point is what it represents, which is the cross and Christ's work of atonement. In other words, the cross was central to their koinonia, and yes, this would include partaking of communion, but it's much more than that. We are to partake of communion as a memorial of what Jesus did for us, which was to die on the cross as the Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. This is all about the message of the cross and not merely a ritual. People aren't saved by taking communion, but they are saved by the crucified, resurrected, and glorified Christ. The cross exposes our guilt and shows us how evil we are and that the only remedy for our sin was for God to become human, to die on the cross as our atoning sacrifice. After the cross condemns us, it offers us the only hope for the guilt we have brought upon ourselves. The forgiveness of sins doesn't happen because we ask for forgiveness, but because the Lord made the way through Calvary that He could justly forgive sinners of their sin and impart to them righteousness. As a result of what He did for us, we can have faith that He will forgive repentant sinners, not because He has to, but because that is who He is. That's the kind of God that broke into our world and personal life. So to me, the breaking of bread is all about how the early church was devoted to the preaching, teaching, witnessing, and partaking of the death of Christ. And it's through his death that we share in the power of his resurrection. The final aspect of spiritual life that those early saints were devoted to was prayer. Prayer is literally the lifeline of a believer, and the early church understood this and lived it out. Prayerless Christians aren't true Christians, for they aren't in genuine relationship with God. There's no way that you can read the Bible and not see the importance of prayer. It's everywhere. Seeing the importance of prayer and praying are two very different things. A lot of self-professing Christians claim to be right with God, yet they don't have a real relationship with Him because they are prayerless. Prayerless people are sinful people. The only way we can live a holy life that's acceptable to God is through dependency upon Him, and this comes through a life of vibrant prayer. Without prayer, all your needs are left unmet. Your family will not have the divine help they need, and salvation won't be brought to them in a powerful way as God would want to. A prayerless life is a selfish life, for it's a life focused upon the self-life and not upon selflessly loving others for their eternal well-being. The blessings of God are tied into a life of prayer, and I'm not talking about the wealth of this world, but the wealth of a life in Christ that knows the wonders of His love. Lack of prayer is always evidence of a lack of love for God, and the only way that we can grow in love for God is through prayer and asking for His transforming grace. There's no excuse for prayerlessness or the lack of a quality prayer life. This is all about what we prioritize in our life. What's important to us we will prioritize, and what isn't we will neglect. We see from this the importance of being devoted to God so that we are devoted to prayer, which is pleasing to Him. When we look at the life of the early church, we see a people who loved Jesus and were devoted to Him as a result. This is why they operated in Holy Spirit power and saw that power transform vast numbers of people. This is what we need in the church today. 
Thank you for listening to The Radical Truth with your host, Glenn Meldrum. We at In His Presence Ministries pray that this weekly podcast will be a blessing to you. Please tell others about it and subscribe yourself to this free podcast. Don't forget to visit our website at www.ihpministry.com. See you again next time, and may God richly bless you as you seek Him in spirit and in truth. Come drink your fill Let healing waters Bear away your guilt Lay down your burdens On a beautiful shore Come wash in the river Come be Oh